Hello, my name is Lynn Hilton Wilson, and I'm part of the Scripture Central team. Today I'm talking about a subject that is not part of the Come Follow Me specifically, but generally. I want to take a step back and look at the women in the New Testament. I want to take a step back and look how Christ empowered them. And if we know enough about their culture, we see this emancipation. And I've talked about this every week with Come Follow Me, but I've decided to divide it into two lessons. The first one on the Gospels, the women there, and the second one on Paul and Peter and how they were treated in the apostolic church, how they treated women. And was there the same evidence there of following Christ or were they just following their culture? So this small section, I feel, will help us to be able to see the scriptures with the lens of history that will bring them more meaningfully to life. Just as a reminder, the New Testament covers the entire Roman Empire. The Gospels mainly deal with um, the area of, that we now refer to as Israel. But um, there were Jews and missionary work scattered all over the Roman Empire. So by the time those people are writing out the Gospels, they know the Gospel has been spreading around the empire. This second temple period had a lot of historical challenges, not only in the Judaic world, but in the Greco-Roman world. And they all affected what Christ taught, what the apostles taught, and what is written in the text. Some of those things are written by a great historian named Josephus. Um, He's not just a historian, he was also a priest. He worked in the temple He had seen the veil. He knew those things. He wasn't the high priest. He's just a priest. But he also became a general for the um, armies. He often quotes scripture and says, for the scripture says, but it's not in our scriptures. These are things that were part of the traditions of the Jews. A woman is inferior to her husband in all things. Making matters worse than that, they blame Eve for all the source of sin. This is written by Ben Sira, who was a very popular writer at about 150 years before the Lord, and it was used as, uh, some people even accepted him as scripture at the time of the Lord. And he said, of the woman came the beginning of sin, and through her we all die. And much of his writing denounces women as um, not just the sources of sin, but the um, if you have contact with a woman, you're going to have sin. But all of this cultural background, Jesus changed. You know, as forcefully as he cleansed the temple, Christ changed this culture. I think we all talk about him healing the blind and, and, and bringing the, restoring the higher priesthood. But as dramatically as he cleansed the temple, Christ changed the relationship between men and women, changed the family dynamics. He speaks to women. He heals women. He defends women. He names, we have their names. We have 45 named women in the New Testament. We have 94 unnamed women. And so I'd like to just give you a few examples of the culture, the culture of segregation, the culture of communication, the culture of witness, so we can see more clearly how Christ made all these changes. Because Christ, um, with every example of his sermons and his miracles, he is attacking something in that community. And unless we know the community, we think, oh, he's such a nice guy. But our Savior did a lot of offensive things to that culture. For example, at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, we have three or four hundred years here that is referred to as the intertestamental period. And during this time, the Judaic culture became more and more segregated. 
Now, in the Old Testament, men and women are talking together. They have active lives together. But these things changed during this time. In fact, we read in the Mishnah that they wanted to, the, the Jewish leaders wanted to build a fence around the law. They were worried that they had been taken out of their promised land to Babylon, Assyria, all these things, because they didn't obey the law. So they want to protect the law. So they start establishing these extra laws. They call them the 10,000 oral laws. They're called oral laws because they think Moses actually gave them, but um, Moses did not give them. They just said they were not written down until this time. But when you hear what they are, when you go read them and study them, you say, Moses never said this. But they became what Christ referred to as the traditions of the Jews. And I'll give you some examples of how these oral laws affected people like Philo, or anybody in the time, and the Jews at the time, how they affected their culture. I'll read, first of all, from a group of Jews that lived outside of the Judaic world. These are in the... Um, country of northern Egypt, a town, a city of Alexandria. Marketplaces and council halls, law courts and gatherings, meetings of large numbers of people were assembled in the open-air life, full of scope of discussion and action. All these are suitable to men, both in war and in peace. The women are best suited to the indoor life, which never strays from the house. A woman then should not be a busybody meddling with matters outside of her household concerns, but should seek a life of seclusion. So not only did the um, Jews in the area around Jerusalem and Galilee have these laws, but we see them scattered everywhere. Remember, about 10% of the Roman Empire are filled with Israelites. And Alexandria is one of these cities where there was a lot of, of people that called themselves Jews, but they're actually from all the tribes of Israel that are just living there. And this was what Philo recorded at the time of the Lord. Philo is writing at this very time of Paul and Peter and the Savior's life. Another statement, another good quote here. Women were always kept in seclusion and did not even appear at the house door. And their unmarried daughters were limited to the women's quarters. Women, for modesty's sake, shunned the eyes of men, even their closest relatives. So most people at this time, if you are living in the Palestine area, are, are peasants. They're living in small homes, you know, a room that's 14 by 16 feet or something like that. You know, you don't have room for segregation. But if you have money, if you have wealth, you have a women's quarters of the house and a men's quarters of the house. And archaeology has shown that. But this idea that most of the people in the area of modern-day Israel, where peasants, is confirmed by archaeologists and anthropologists. And we do find statements, even in the Mishnah, that's written after the time of the Lord, but referring back to this time, that said, a woman that returned from the harvest or from olive picking or from the vintage. So either women were servants or slaves, or during the harvest season, a poor farmer has to call all of his family out to help do that harvest. You know, he's not going to let half of the harvest die because he didn't have enough workers. He's going to say, come on out. You got it. You got to help me. But in the wealthy, we do see a segregation, not only of the homes, but in the public life, in the worship, in the synagogues. The women were um, allowed in at the time of the New Testament, but they were to stay over in one little corner and they were to be silenced, unseen and unheard. They were completely veiled. If they ever left their house, veiled head to toe, not even their fingertips and their toenails could be seen. 
Um, now, after the time of the New Testament is when they start building the lattice barriers with a second entrance for women to come in a second door and to be behind this barrier. In the temple, I was fascinated that in the New Testament, Mary says, it is said of Mary in chapter two of Luke, that they went to the temple every year. Well, the Mishnah says women don't have to go to the temple. Only men have to go to the temple and children who can walk up this hill, uh, boys who can walk up the hill. But Mary went every year. So I would just like to encourage us to realize there's a whole spectrum of people. The records that I'm reading from are what we have left from the wealthy, educated people who um, were writing things down and saved. So probably the Pharisaic tradition had more writings down than the poor farmers. So let's just keep that in mind as we read this, because I know there are many good Jews who are not misogynist. <laughs> but at the temple, you've got your court of the Gentile, where everyone is, and then the inner courtyard. Once you go into the first inner courtyard, it's called the court of the women. So I assume this was filled with women. But by the time of the New Testament, according to our writings, all the women were secluded over to one little corner. It's the corner right by um, where the widow's might was placed, where the widow went. It's, it's where the treasury is. And the women were to be there, unseen and unheard. Now, the men and were talked in the court of the women, and the, and the young boys were there with lots of lively discussions. And our Savior has many of his discussions there in the court of the women. But the women were always over in this one little corner. Josephus continues on in this idea of segregation. The anomaly of woman is worked out by assigning her to a man's domain. Women are sanctified through the deeds of men. Isn't this an interesting thing? But Christ comes and changes that. You know, all these ideas. He not Remember Matthew says, not only did he feed 500 um, men, but there were women and children that came. This was a novelty. That was not to be done in that culture. That's why Matthew mentions it. And with the feeding of the 4,000, Matthew also mentions it. Christ also refuted those who removed children. He had them come. He encouraged women to stay and to learn. He not only encouraged them to come, but he even healed them when they were out in public where they shouldn't have been. You know, um, let's talk about this one healing, the healing of the woman uh, who had the issue of blood. Now, we look at the law of Moses and we're told in Exodus and Deuteronomy and Ezekiel that if 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 you are unclean, you need to stay away from people. They don't understand the germ theory, but they do know contagiousness. And they don't know what everything is. But if you're in a state of being unclean and there's a whole list of things that are unclean, please stay away from people. And um, we're told that she has been bleeding for 12 years. She is unclean in the category of what they felt was unhealthy. And um, so she was not to be out in public. She is breaking the law to be there. And remember, Jesus has just left the synagogue in Capernaum to go down and heal Jairus, the leader of the synagogue's daughter. And in route on these narrow little streets of this busy, bustling city, um, this woman sneaks out in a crowd of men to touch a very specific part of the Lord's cloak, where the knots are in the corner where the covenant, representing the covenant. And she is healed immediately. And it says in the text, the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed came trembling and fell to his, at his feet. And in the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. This tells us so much about this woman. She could have just run away. There was a crowd of people during all the commotion of Christ asking. She could have just slipped out. 
but she wanted to testify of Christ, and she does. She raises her voice. She honors him, and then Christ honors her. He says in the King James, thy faith hath made thee whole. He doesn't say, you're right. I'm the healer. You got it, woman. He doesn't say that. I love the ABT translation. He says, your faith has brought you salvation. Now, this is very important because in that day and age, every time there was a physical ailment, it was blamed on a sin. And if you were blind, it was the mother's fault. Or if you were, or if you were, or if you were, or if you were. Every physical ailment is tied to a sin. And so Christ says, your faith. He's not just healing her inside. By saying this at the end, he is healing her physically and spiritually and emotionally. It's a fabulous story. Let's talk about the Greco-Roman um, background of communication and the Judaic. Um, here's Ben Sira. This is that rabbi um, the, um, in Jerusalem that was almost equivalent with scripture. It's, it's recorded now in our, you can read Ben Sira if you'd like in the apocryphal literature. Um, Better is the iniquity of a man than a woman doing a good turn and a woman bringing shame and reproach. Uh, this is, they just have horrendous ideas about women. They continue on, talk not much with womankind. They said this of a man's own wife, how much more his fellow's wife. So you're not even supposed to be talking to your own wife. Here's Ecclesiastes, another book that's from this time period, very well known. A silent wife is a gift from the Lord. Her restraint is more than money can buy. This is not the book from the Old Testament. Um, but this idea that a woman should never speak was what they defined as a good woman. I'll give you some more examples from the Mishnah and the Talmud. Now, these are written after the fact, looking back on this time, recording down what the rabbis taught at the time of the Second Temple. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law. And at last will inherit Gehenna, or, which is hell. So if you're going to talk to a woman, um, you're wasting your time. And if you're going to talk to a woman, you're going to go to hell. And here's another one. Now, this is written much later um, than the time of Christ, but it's supposedly looking back. We have not found that the Almighty spoke to a woman except Sarah. So why should we? Now, one reason that they had to have um, arranged marriages is because there was no communication between these genders. And arranged marriages happened. You know, the girls have to be before they're 12 and a half. The, the average age um, for a man was about 18. But if you're not married and a woman by 20 or a man by 25, you've got to pay extra taxes. And as soon as you're married, the young girl has to call her husband master. Uh, only a, a male can call the divorce. And you can divorce someone just by saying it. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and writing it out, and that's good enough. We have records that say the only way a woman can receive her freedom is through widowhood. But that was even changed by Alexander, not Alexander, um, that was changed by Caesar Augustus, who says, if a woman has not borne three children, and she is still of childbearing age, and she is a widow, she has two years to get divorced, or she's got to pay higher taxes. There were fewer divorces in the Judaic world, but we read of Judaic marriages being stifled with fear and anxiety and mistrust and imitation. Their, their relationship was completely stunted as the woman had to comply with every wish of her husband because if he wanted to divorce her, she did not get to keep her children and she was left in abject poverty. But Christ came and changed 
all of this. When he spoke about divorce, he is denying what their version of it was. He is aware of women's needs all the time. And he talks to them, even on his way to his cross. Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. This is Luke 23. But weep for yourselves and for your children. It's verse 28. Remember the Samaritan woman, the well? This is the longest conversation that we have from the Lord in the entire New Testament. And let's just start looking at this one. So this woman is, is going way out of her way. Um, and she is coming way, you know, there's archaeologists have found a, a, a well very close to the town. It says that she's coming in the hot middle of the day at noon. She's coming a, a mile out of town to come to Jacob's well. She's probably trying to be away from people. I don't, I don't know, but she, she's making some unusual behavior. So we have to sort of connect the dots here so that when she sees the Lord talking to her, the first thing she says is in John chapter four, verse nine, how is it that thou being a Jew ask us a drink of me, which am a woman? Now we often emphasize the fact that this is a Samaritan, but twice in this text of John, he emphasizes that Jewish men did not talk to women. Continuing on in verse 10, the Lord tries to lead her, tries to get her out of her area, just like he did with Nicodemus in the chapter before, but Nicodemus came at night and Nicodemus couldn't follow him. You know, he, Nicodemus was a leader of the Jew. He was the antithesis of this woman. You know, he was a righteous, educated male who came at night and in darkness and he left in darkness. So he's trying to teach this woman who comes in the, in the greatest light of the day. He said, if thou knewest the gift of God, this is verse 10, in whom it was that saith unto thee, give me drink, thou wouldst have asked of him that he would have given thee living water. You know, this conversation goes and she doesn't follow him and she realizes that he's a prophet when he prophesies and when he tells her of her past and he says, I, she says, okay, if you're a prophet, where are we supposed to worship, worship? In Jerusalem or up here in Samaria? On our mountain, which the Jews had destroyed their temple 170 years before. And Jesus teaches her. He teaches a woman of how to worship. He says, this is continuing on in verse 19. True worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And she says, she follows him a little bit farther and she, she just doesn't understand. She's never able to completely understand him. And so she says, you know, I'm just going to wait for the Messiah to come. And in chapter four, verse 26, he says, I that speak unto thee am he. He testifies of his nature before this wicked woman. And then she does the most wonderful thing. She leaves her water pot behind to share the news. She leaves her cares of the world. You know, the water pot can be symbolic of, of, of her old traditions her old ways, or anything that was not of Christ. But now that she knows who he is, she leaves her old ways behind and runs into the town. And she shares with the people there in the city the news. The men come out. They talk to Jesus. They invite him back in the city. By this time, the apostles had come back. And the apostles even said, what is Jesus doing talking to a woman? You know, it doesn't say in John there, Samaria. It just says a woman. Uh, you know, they're so puzzled. But Jesus includes the Samaritans. He talks them. He establishes the first branch of Christianity here, as I mentioned earlier in our Come Follow Me, all because of this great woman. So even though I've mentioned these stories before, I want to put them together in a package so you can see Christ's emancipation of these women. One of the greatest examples of Christ communicating comes with the stories of Mary and Martha. 
Crisis in Bethany. This is Luke chapter 10. You know the story, a busy dinner party. Martha's very active at work because we've got all these people coming um, along with the Lord that she's got to cook for. And so she goes to the head of the household. She's an upright Jewish woman. And she says, Master, could you please get my sister to help me? I'm, I'm desperate. You know, we've, we've still got to pluck the, the feathers off the turkey. You know, there's a lot of work to get a meal here. And the Lord corrects her and says, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part. And the one thing that is needful is to come unto Christ, to learn from him. He is not denouncing service. He is not denouncing anything of that nature. He is encouraging us to set our priorities, put our scripture study first, not our exercise, put our time on our knees with the Lord first, not our jobs, our, our studies, or whatever takes us from him. And then the last line is my favorite, chapter 10, verse 42, that which shall not be taken away from her. Do you remember in the culture at this time, a woman could own nothing. If she was a girl, every dime she earned, every, well, every, <laughs> they're not dimes, but you know what I mean. Everything she earned was given to her guardian or her father. And then as a married woman, everything she earned or found or did was the property of her husband or if her husband had passed away, her oldest son. But women owned nothing. And so by Christ saying, that which shall not be taken away from her, he's saying your testimony of, of me, your knowledge, your eternal understanding of who the Son of Man is will never be taken from you if you can hold on to this belief. It is a powerful conclusion to that story. Number three, witnesses. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, as well as the Judaic culture, women were not allowed to give a public witness. And in the Judaic world, it was even more strict. Um, they were not allowed to be a voice in the court of law. And other people were not allowed as well. We talked about this earlier. The shepherds were not allowed. Uh, you know, there's people who were dishonest by trade that they wouldn't allow to have a witness. And it describes it in the Mishnah as they were not allowed because of the levity and boldness of their sex. But we see changes. Christ comes and he commissions women over and over to be witnesses. We have Mary, the virgin, this young girl who is probably still in her early teens, who is commissioned to be a witness. We have Elizabeth. The priesthood holder is mute. He can't speak. Elizabeth, not only with her physical body, but with the words of her mouth, testifies of Christ. She's actually called a priestess in the New Testament. And because of this tradition of attacking every sin to a, um, um, a physical handicap, Luke is very careful as a physician to say that Elizabeth was walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. That's Luke chapter one, verse six. So she was a righteous woman. And then, of course, we have the example of Anna who's called a prophetess in the New Testament. She's been a widow for a long time. You know, she could be a hundred years old. It, we don't know what year she got married, but you know, she is a very old woman and she is still working in the temple. So my hat's off to everybody who works in the temple for a long time. She's called a prophetess. She's allowed to see the Lord and she prophesies there. We often quote Peter as his witness by saying, when the Lord said, will you also go away? And Peter answers in Matthew 16, 17, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
But let us quote Martha's voice just as often, because the early church um, authors, you know, the, the, the writers of John recorded it. The early apostolic church recorded these things. We need to write them into our hearts and also allow their witnesses to be heard. At the death of Lazarus, Martha is now out on the street waiting for the Lord. And when she sees the Lord, she says, if you would have been there, you could have healed my brother. And the Lord says, do you believe? And in John chapter 11, verse 27, she says, yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the son of God, which had come into the world. You know, he not only um, asks for their witness, but they record it. And it's there for us. Christ called women to testify and they did. And it was recorded. And then we go to the tomb. Who's at the cross? Only women. And early in the morning of Easter, the early morning on Sunday, the women are there. They're the ones who see angels. When Peter and John run to the tomb, do they see angels? No, the angels commission them. It says in Matthew 28, verse five and verse seven, the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that you seek Jesus. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he has written. And of course, our first witness is Mary of Magdala, and the Savior commands her to share that witness. Over and over, the Lord asks women to speak up. We have examples in the um, Gospels. We have examples in the early apostolic church, the, the writings that we know of as the epistles. Women are constantly called. But if Christ emancipated women and children, why didn't he emancipate slaves? Why do we have all these examples from John the Baptist, even our Savior's parables, all the way through um, Paul? He even returns a runaway slave, Philemon's, to Philemon in Onimius in, in that good book. Why? Why, if, if Christ liberates the family so that men and women can have uh, unity? You know, I feel like Christ's liberation was not just for women. It healed the marriages. You can't have a decent marriage if you call somebody master and you act like a slave. So this idea is very interesting to me. Why didn't he say anything against slavery? Well, it's very much a part of the Roman Empire. One third of the Roman Empire were living in servitude. A half of the major cities, not just Rome, but Jerusalem, Alexandria, Antioch, one half are in slavery. And the normal, average, middle-class family across the Roman Empire had eight servants. There were so many slaves and servants that even servants had slaves. Even slaves owned a slave. If you didn't own a slave, you were in abject poverty. However, it was very different. In the Judaic world, remember the law of Moses designates that you, if you were a male and slave, you only had to serve seven years. And in the Greco-Roman world, most provinces were released every, and once they turned 30. Now, some of the provinces was not until they're 35. But once they were mature, they then were given some money and some encouragement, you know, a donkey, whatever, and, and sent out on their own. Um, now, the book of Exodus explains, though, in chapter 21, that a, if a man sell his daughter, and I'll add, or his wife, because wives could be sold as well at this time, to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. So a female was not allowed to be released after seven years, according to this verse in Exodus, because they became the property of their master. 
And as the property of their master, they became a concubine. They were to raise his seed. They were to bear his children and raise them. So she was not released because by being sold into slavery, she was sold into being a concubine of the person that she was slave to. The Jerusalem Talmud, which is written after the fact, said, is there any difference between the acquisition of a wife and the acquisition of a slave? And at that time, this author said, no, I don't think everyone felt that way. But it is recorded here in the Talmud. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 38, when Mary is receiving the angelic visitation from angel Gabriel, the great annunciation. And she says, after the angel explains her commission, she answers in verse 38, Behold the handmaiden of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. So let's just step back into her culture. She's not using the beautiful King James word in handmaiden. She says, now remember, she's a young girl. She hasn't been married, but she's already betrothed. So she's over 12 and a half, probably, but possibly under 12 and a half. So she's 12, 13, 14 years old. And she says to Angel Gabriel, I will be God's slave child. I will be his servant. I will bear his son. I will raise him. This is a powerful verse to understand the depth of Mary's understanding and her faith. Here's another example. Our Savior um, gives a parable in Matthew chapter 18, where a slave went out and found one of his own fellow slaves. You know, these just are all over the place. Do you remember John the Baptist has tells this, everyone comes to him to hear and he gives advice to masters and he gives advice to slaves. He says, masters, be nice. Slaves, be obedient. You know, why? This was just really puzzling to me. Um, and in fact, John the Baptist is asked, are you the Messiah? And do you remember what he says? He says, one mightier than I cometh, the latcheth of whose shoe I am not worthy to unloosen. So he said, I am not even worthy to be his slave. A slave did the foot care, not a disciple. A disciple was able to help your master teacher. But he says, I'm not even worthy to do the slave's work. Slave would have to untie the knot on that leather tong in order to keep, clean a shoe. This is a powerful image. And in fact, if you were a master teacher and you had lots of disciples, you could volunteer as a disciple to do some of the slave's work so you could spend more time with your master teacher. If you wanted 15 more minutes with your master teacher, you'd say, can I come in and help you wash your faith and wash your hands that day? But you couldn't say, may I help you wash your feet? Because that was left for the slave child. You know, bring in the little girl, bring in the little boy, bring in your wife. You know, that was left for the lowest of the low. A disciple could not do that. And that is why Peter goes crazy when the Lord tries to wash his feet. Never. You know, I talked about this before. Peter just cannot handle this. But Christ says, if I wash you not, thou hast no part of me. Why did Christ not get rid of slavery? Well, because he taught all during his ministry, repeatedly over and over again. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Continuing on, Matthew chapter 20. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Mark chapter 10, verse 44. Whosoever you will be the chiefest 
shall be the servant of all. Christ is completely in favor of servitude. Luke chapter 19, thou good and faithful servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, thou has authority over 10 cities. Do you remember this one? Matthew 23, whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. So not only is Christ in favor of servitude, he is also not in favor of those who exalt themselves. He wants to bring them down. And in this era where the socioeconomic pyramid was so clear and the Greco-Roman world, you've got your Caesar and then your senators, et cetera, et cetera, all the way down. And then in the Judaic world, you have your high priest on the top and then you have your chief priests and your Levites. And then you, you also have your Sanhedrin and, and you have your teachers and down in the lowest of the low are the women and the children. And Christ completely turns that culture upside down. As I repeated over and over again, Christ wants to teach masters how to serve. So Christ's emancipation of women and servitude is very different. He wants women to come up and be acknowledged and witness and speak and teach and learn. And he wants all masters to learn how to serve like the women and the children and the servants and that we may all become exalted if we follow the path of our Savior that he set out. This is a very different look at the New Testament. And I hope as you continue your study right now in the New Testament that you will be able to take this and allow it to percolate into your heart so that every cell in your body will realize that if we want to walk where Christ walked, if we want to do and become like our Savior, we need to serve. We need to share um, the ability to nurture. It's not who's, who's sitting in the seat as the bishop. It's who's willing to be in the nursery. That's where Christ would be. I'm convinced that whoever is called, wherever you're called, if we do it as a meek servant, we will receive the Spirit of God to bless us. And one of the things that the Savior restored during his mission is the blessings of understanding the need for all of us to serve each other. And I leave this with you in the name of the suffering servant, even Jesus Christ. Amen.